I'd ask that you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians. If you don't know where the book of 1 Corinthians is at, uh, you want to get about 60% uh, through the Bible to the New Testament and then to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a letter uh, that is written to the church that is in Corinth uh, by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25 this morning. So as you're turning there, uh, for some that it, uh, it's their first Sunday here, we've been in a series that we've entitled, In the Shadow of the Cross. And for the last month or so, we have been looking at uh, different uh, passages of Scripture that speak about the cross and what the cross means uh, to you and to me. We've been looking at attributes of the cross that should affect our lives. A cross that was um, was set into uh, the ground and a Jesus being placed on it 2,000 years ago seems like a long time to have any effect on us today. But as we've been looking at the words of the cross, we see that it still impacts people today. I want to look today at what I would entitle the power of the cross. We've just sung about it. And you may be asking, Tim, why are we speaking about the cross this morning? Shouldn't we be speaking about the empty tomb? Shouldn't we be speaking about the passages of each of the uh, four Gospels that speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Maybe we should be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking about the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and then our hope for the resurrection when we all die. But I will tell you, The power of the cross is found in an empty tomb. If we don't have the empty tomb, there is no power to that cross. If we have no empty tomb, then the sins that Jesus supposedly said that he would save us from is just a lie. It's just a hoax. But we know, we know what the word of God says. We know it to be true that it says as, as art, is articulated in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel you are saved. He goes on to say, For what I have received I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to to the Scriptures, and that He appeared uh, to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep or have died. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He says, and at last He has appeared to me also as to one who is abnormally born. We need to understand that the reason why there's power in the cross is because on this glorious Easter Sunday, when those women went to the tomb, they did not see Jesus' body. They did not see a stone over a grave, but they saw an angel who said, He is not here. He is risen just as He said. There's power in the cross because of an empty tomb. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Now, if you were going to start out a a movement, if you were going to begin a business, 
what everybody would tell you is, is that you need to come up with some sort of symbol and some sort of slogan that will uh, impress the hearts of people to think about your business or your political campaign or the service that you want to provide. All the great ones have it. It does, it's amazing to me as we're driving down the road, my three-year-old Joshua, when he sees those golden arches, he says, Daddy, I'm hungry. And I say, but you just see a yellow and red M. But Daddy, I'm hungry. A symbol that reminds him where food and sustenance and happy meals can be found. How about slogans? We've all heard of the slogan, you're in good hands with who? Allstate. A slogan is an amazing thing. It reminds us. It tells us of, of what a certain company or a certain group of people desire to do. We've watched this last November where one word impressed the hearts of a nation uh, to move in a political direction. The word was change. Not a big fancy word, just a word that said change. And yet it spoke volumes to a nation. And yet when we look at Christianity 2,000 years ago that desires to have a powerful message, its symbol is that of an execution procedure. The cross is nothing spectacular. In fact, the cross is one of the most sad symbols that humankind could ever have. And yet it is the symbol that we hold to. It is that which we put our hopes on. It's amazing that the cross, of all the things you would have thought as Christians, with the resurrection, we would have had a symbol, our symbol of our faith, to be a stone that is rolled away. But it's not. We symbolize what took place on Good Friday more than we symbolize what took place on Easter Sunday. And yet, it's a, a symbol that seems to be foolish to the world. How about a slogan? Does Christianity have a slogan? No. There's no slogan in Christianity. There's no five or six letter phrase that says, man, go with Jesus. He's the best. And nothing like that. There's no slogan. There's a symbol of weakness. And yet I'm here to tell you, as Paul says today, that the message of the cross is powerful. It is so powerful that it changes lives even today as it did that first Easter Sunday. For 2,000 years, it has transformed lives, taking people who have thought one way, who have abandoned all kinds of thoughts of grandeur and self-achievement and have humbled themselves because of the message of this cross. So I want to look at this message today and look at three attributes that come from it. But as we normally do, if you would stand as we read from God's Word this morning from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in, uh, we'll start in verse 17 and go through verse 25. For God did not send me to baptize, Paul says, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. 
I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Father God, we come before you and we rejoice because you are living. That you are not in a tomb, Lord. Every other religion in this world serves a dead deity. And yet, Lord, we serve the living King of kings. It is because of that that your message of this cross and this burial and resurrection is one that still changes lives. Lord, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the transforming power that you are working in our lives today. So, Lord, remind us of the message of the cross. Remind us of the message of Easter so that in doing so, we might be again further changed. For those who have never trusted you as their Savior, for those who have never come to a place of acknowledgement of your Lordship, Lord, that they would bow the knee this morning, that there would be another resurrection, if you will, the resurrection of one who was dead and now who is spiritually alive. Speak through me, Lord. Give me words that will articulate the truth of your scriptures that you may be brought glory, honor, and praise and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. If the message of the cross is of such great importance, we need to understand and recognize what the message of the cross is. What does it contain? When Paul talks about the message of the cross, what he's talking about is everything from Christ's incarnation at the uh, little city of Bethlehem. Remember the story? Uh, Mary is found to be with child, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph and Mary head off to Bethlehem and they're going to be a part of a census. And during that time, she gives birth. She gives birth to the Messiah, Jesus. Now, not much is said about his younger life, but we know that he grows in wisdom and in stature and in uh, the favor of both God and man. And we know that then he does his trade, a carpenter's son. He begins to work in the area of Galilee, in the area of Nazareth. And what takes place? We know that at about 30 years of age, he begins an itinerant preaching ministry. It involves some healing. It involves some miracles. But predominantly, it is that he proclaims the goodness of the Messiah who now has come and that he is it. Now, we know that the chief priests and rulers of the day become angry about this. And we see a growing confrontation take place between these two groups of people. It comes to a, a boiling point 
around the time of Palm Sunday. Jesus comes back after three years in the ministry and he comes back to Jerusalem. A great parade is thrown for him where people begin to announce the greatness of this Jesus. And then we know that during the Passover time, Jesus would go to a garden and he would go and he would be spending time in prayer and he had already announced to his disciples as they were partaking in the uh, the last supper with their friend Jesus that he says one would betray them. And of course, Judas does. And in the garden, we see Judas bring in a group of army men into the garden. They arrest him and they take him. We know, of course, that there's a trial that takes place, a couple sets of trials that seem to make no sense. There's no charges against him that they can find, so they just make up their own charges. And then we know that Jesus is beaten, he's abused, he's mocked, and he's reviled. And then we know that he's given uh, the cross. He's taken up to a place called Golgotha outside of the city, and he is placed on a cross between two thieves. Now, what do we know about all this? If that was the end of the story, then we would know about a good man who died a terrible death. But the story continues to go on. After he dies on the cross, he's placed in a rich man's tomb, and the stone is rolled over his tomb after he's embalmed and after all the funeral preparations are done. And the disciples say, the movement's over. Jesus said he was going to change the world, and now he's dead. And of course, we know that on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, some women go to mourn and they don't see Jesus. In fact, they don't see a stone in front of the tomb, but they walk in and they see an angel who says he is risen just as he has said. They run and go and tell Peter, James and John and the other disciples. And of course, the story continues to go on. And that's why we're here today. That's the message of the cross. Jesus Christ, being fully God, came to earth that he might redeem a people unto himself. He did that by dying on the cross. But not only to defeat our sin, but to defeat the greatest enemy of us being death. And that's why he was raised from the dead. Look at what the uh, book of 1 Corinthians says in verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion, which means good news. It literally means good news. What we celebrate today on Easter Sunday is good news. Jesus Christ died just as he said he would, and he has been raised from the dead. Now, why is all this important? Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The reason why this message is so powerful is because it brings forth eternal life. This message isn't just about a martyr. This message isn't about an uh, individual who had a following, but it is about a uh, God in heaven who comes and dies for you and me and as a result of that allows us to have eternal life. What a powerful message this Easter story is all about. And so we look at this message this morning. There are three attributes I want to look at this morning. The first thing is, is that this message is a saving message. 
It is powerful because it is a saving message. Notice what Paul says in our text. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, uh, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just as John 3.16 says, this message saves people from their sins. I need that back. You know, we love stories about saviors. We love stories about people who are heroes. Remember the story of uh, the Hudson River plane crash? Remember the great accolades that were given to the uh, uh, flight uh, uh, pilot who uh, steered through buildings and steered through all kinds of struggles to find himself a landing place in a river of all places? Remember not too long ago in New York, it could have been a disaster, but because of a wonderful thinking and quick actions, he was able to be a hero. How about the one that we've heard about time and time again this last week off the coast of Africa? A man doesn't just think quickly and make right actions, but he sacrifices himself for others. We've heard about this story uh, or this uh, ongoing story about these pirates that have taken over this ship off of the coast of Africa. Now we know and we've heard what has transpired. What took place was as all the crew was captured by these uh, uh, Somalian, I believe it was, pirates that have taken over the ship. And what does the captain do? They told, tell us that what he did was he created a diversion so that his crew could go, but in doing so, he knew that he would be captured. We love stories like that. But the Easter story is more than just a man thinking quickly at the right time. It also is more than just being captured because the story of Christianity, the story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came not just to be captured, but to be killed. He came to be killed not because of anything he had done, but because of what we had done. Jesus talked about this. He said, there's no greater love than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. How did he, why did he do that? He did that to save us. Now, you would think a story of such love and of such sacrifice, a story of such forgiveness that everybody would love it. Just as the uh, movie is told about, it is the greatest story ever told. And yet Paul says that this story, this message, has a couple different responses. Notice what the responses are. The first one is, is that some dismiss it as absurd. Notice what the text says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I want you to understand something. That word foolishness is a very strong term. In the Greek, it is the Greek word moria which is where we get the English word moron or moronic. What it's saying literally is, is the message of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. They're saying this is absurd. This isn't right. This isn't true. The idea of a bunch of people going to church and to worship a, a God who says that he sent his son to die and to be raised from the dead, that's absurd. Of course that didn't happen. For some here today, it is not a saving message, but a silly message. You've never thought that all that highly of Christianity. You've thought that people uh, who have been changed by an obscure carpenter, 
an obscure teacher in the first century of Palestine? Well, that's dumb. Why would you believe in something like that? Why would you put so much hope in such a far-fetched and fanciful idea? Why would you do such a thing? We live amongst people that think that way. In fact, I was uh, watching uh, last night after I finished my preparation uh, of the uh, message, and I turned on the TV, and there's this show uh, called 30 Days. Some of you have seen it. And uh, 30 Days is, is taking one month of time and taking two uh, groups of people and putting them in a situation that they would never put themselves into at any given time. Well, of course, uh, this one, probably because of the, the time of Easter, talks about an atheist that for 30 days has to live in the house of evangelical Christians. What would they do? What would their response be like? How would they treat one another? And one of the things that you continue to hear from the atheists is, this is absurd. Why would you do all that you're doing for a God that does not exist? Paul says... That's one of the responses. It's absurd. Maybe today you find yourself speaking that kind of language. I hope that through the message of Christ this morning, you may change your mind. Because there are not only some that dismiss it as absurd, but some embrace it as the answer. Many of us in this place today don't look at it as a story that is absurd, but we say that is the answer that we have been looking for. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. What can we do to save ourselves from imminent death that will separate us for eternity from God? The answer is Jesus Christ. And we look to the Scriptures, and the Scriptures declare that Jesus Christ came to live and to die, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we respond and we say, absolutely, yes, Yes, Jesus, you are the answer to the questions. You are the answer to my problems. And yet for many here that are doubting, who are being critical of Christ, they're blown away by this answer. Give me proof. Give me rational thoughts that would say, yes, I can't give you that. I can't tell you that I've seen God. I can't tell you that I've audibly talked with God. But just as the blind man said, I was once blind, but now I see. It's an amazing change of my heart. I know the kind of man that I am. And I know that Christ has set me free. Now, how is it that two people can come to the same cross, that two people can hear the same message and respond in two different ways? The answer is found in your perspective. There was a certain man named Dr. Evans who was touring Italy one day. And a friend said to him, there's a blessing that you will receive if you will go to thus and such a place and see a painting of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Dr. Evans said, what is it like? A friend said, never mind what it's like. I want you to go see it. You need to see it and promise me that you will go and see it. Dr. Evans promised him, and he said he would go and see the painting. Now, he went to the village where this painting was being kept. It was in a chapel. The caretaker said, you have come to see the painting, haven't you? Dr. Evans said, why, yes, I have. The caretaker led him to the painting. He was not prepared for what he saw. He was looking for a beautiful masterpiece of art. 
And there was Jesus on the cross, but it seemed all out of proportion. It didn't make sense. It seemed to somehow be top-heavy. Dr. Evans said, I don't understand this painting. The caretaker replied, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Come closer. And that's what he did. The caretaker said, you must get lower. And he did. And yet the caretaker said, you must come even closer. You must get lower. Come closer. Get lower. Finally, Dr. Evans found himself kneeling on the ground at the very foot of the cross. When he looked up, he saw the perspective from which the painting had been made. The most beautiful picture came into view. And he realized that now it made all the sense in the world. All he had to do was kneel at the cross. Maybe today you find yourself saying, this message is absurd. Have you been found in the shadow of the cross? Maybe you've got questions to a myriad of of issues in your life. And you sit there and say, I I don't have answers for them. But what it means is I just need to keep working on. I need to keep uh, fixing myself and making myself better and more knowledgeable. The answer isn't in knowledge, my friends. It isn't in more schooling or more money. The answer is in the foot of the cross and kneeling at that foot of the cross where we can find salvation. Second point this morning, the cross is powerful because it contains a simple message. It's a simple message. Not only does it save, but it's simple. Notice what the text tells us. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made made foolish the wisdom of the world? It later says that he was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The story of Christianity and the story of the cross is quite simple. Jesus Christ came to die that you might have life. That's it. Now, there's a lot of other things around it. The body of work, the Bible, and all of the theology that we need to understand about it is a lifetime goal for us to achieve and to know. But the gospel is very easy. Jesus Christ came to die that you might have life. It's it's easy enough, it's simple enough that a child can understand it. And yet so many people in this world say it's too hard. It can't be that simple. It's got to be more than that. And that's where we see that even though it is found to be simplistic in nature, human wisdom denies it. In light of its simplicity, human wisdom denies it. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus came to die that we might have life. And how we get that, the key by which we get that is by experiencing faith in our life, opening our hearts to Jesus Christ and saying, yes, Jesus, I need you to take care of my sin. Yes, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. Jesus, I can't live the way I'm living. But human wisdom tells us that no, no, it can't be that easy. And the first thing that human wisdom tells us is there is no God. One day, students in one of Albert Einstein's classes was saying that they had dis- one of their classes said that they had decided that there was no God. Einstein asked them how much of all the knowledge in the world had they amongst themselves collectively as a class. 
They began to think it through and discuss it. And for a while, they did that. And they had decided that they, amongst themselves alone in that class, had 5% of all the human knowledge amongst themselves. Einstein thought about their estimate. And he thought it was a little generous. But he replied, if that is possible, that God, if it is possible then that God exists in the 95% that you do not know. For some here today, you're saying God doesn't exist. The reason why it's absurd is, is because your human wisdom says there is no God. Then, then how do you answer the questions of life? How do you answer the questions of death? How do you answer the questions of, of love and suffering? If there is no God, then we live the saddest life known. What a sad thing to think that we would only live just to die. That there is no creator who loves us. There's no creator that cares for us. But it's a dog-eat-dog world. And we just do what we need to to get from one day to the other. But who cares? After all is said and done, life will be over and you will be dead. And yet still some say that is the case. And maybe you say, okay, there is a God. But, but it's got to be more than just believing in Jesus. Notice what the text says. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? The idea here is Paul is setting up an argument. And he's saying, all right, yes, the message of the cross is foolishness if you're looking at it from your perspective. If you look to it and ask the question, uh, it's got to be more, then the wise man, the scholar, and the philosopher are going to say, no, there must be more to receive eternal life. We see it in religion, don't we? Religion tells us that no, it isn't as easy as grace. It isn't as easy as faith in Christ Jesus. It's more than that. It's a series of rituals. It's a series of uh, remembering this date and that date, doing this and doing that. And hopefully on the day of judgment, you've done enough good that at that day, God will look and say, all right, there's enough good to outweigh the bad. Come into my heaven. And so we build these intricate ideas of religion and these religious systems that tell us that are based on human wisdom of how we are to get to God. And yet God says, believe. Have faith and believe. It's foolishness. But who is it foolishness to? It says that it's foolishness not to those who are being saved, but those who are perishing. Now notice the next thing that we see. Not only does human wisdom deny it, but God's wisdom is displayed in it. It says that God was pleased to have the foolishness of the cross be proclaimed and allow that foolishness to save others. I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse in my life than being the sole voice on any issue. To be the one that speaks against the crowd and finds themselves being the vocal minority. Whatever it may be. The team that you root for, the political stances that you take, your Christianity. Whatever it is, we don't like to be that. And yet what God says is He loves it. It says it pleases Him to find that He is in the minority. Why? Why would he enjoy being in the minority? I can tell you the reason is simple. The same reason that I don't mind at times being in the vocal minority. And that is, is when I know I'm right, 
without a shadow of a doubt. I won't be worried that people make fun of me. I won't be worried that people will say, well, he's wrong or look how dumb he is. He doesn't know the right answer. If I know the answer to be true and know that at some point in the future I will be vindicated of that, then I sit back and say, believe what you want. But the answer is this. And I just look forward to the day that I'm proved right. Why is God pleased? Now, he knows and he understands that he's being mocked. He knows and understands he's being reviled for this message of the cross. But what he says is, it's all right. There's a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. So make fun of me. Do what you will. Speak about it. The Bible says, the fool says in the heart, there is no God. He says, that's all right, fool. Talk all you want. I think it's quite humorous. I think it's quite funny. Because you say all this now, but when you stand before me, your knees will get a little shaky. And you will fall to the ground. And that God that you shook your fist at that said that was non-existent, you will say, praise be to God. It pleases him. He loves this message and he loves that it is foolishness to those. Final thing we see this morning is that the message of Christianity and that of Easter is a separating message. It is a separating message. Notice what the text then shares. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now he goes on, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. He breaks it down and he breaks it down for people. He says, understand this, the cross of Christ is a bigger debate and a bigger separator than uh, liberals and conservatives. Republicans and Democrats, Cub fans and Sox fans. It's more important and it will divide more than any type of genre of music, any type of taste in food. It doesn't matter. It divides. The Bible talks about Jesus says in his word that he will divide families, brother from brother, sons and daughters from their mothers and fathers. Why? Because this message is one that separates. We have to make a choice. When we come to the shadow of the cross, we have a choice that must be made. Either I will respond in obedience to the cross and all that it involves, or I will continue to live in rejection to that cross. And so what do we see? Well, he names, first of all, those who reject it. And he gives two types of people. He says, first of all, he speaks of the Jews. Now, he's speaking in a time as a Jewish individual, knowing uh, what is transpiring with his people. And he says the Jews uh, demanded miraculous signs. And that's the first group of people that I think could be represented here this morning. The idea here is the Jewish people, when Christ was living, wanted Jesus on their own terms. What they desired was, as they said, all right, Jesus, we'll like you. Just keep doing the miracles. Jesus, keep helping us. Now remember, what they were hoping for in Jesus was a a king who would then take away the authority of Rome. 
And so they said, Jesus, yeah, you're the guy making food out of a couple of loaves and fishes, healing the blind and raising up the lame. Man, Jesus, you're the right guy. You're the king. You're the one that we want. And multitudes of people followed him. But then it was when, when the signs stopped. After the feeding of the 5,000, the people came back the next day and they said, we're hungry again, Jesus. Do some of your magic. You know, make us some food. And Jesus says, hey, I am the bread of life. You need to take in me not just the bread that I give, but you need to take in all of me, not just the signs that are given. There are some here today who are like the Jews of the first century who say, Jesus, I will accept you if you do what I tell you to do. I will accept you, Jesus, if you take care of me. I will accept you, Jesus, if you get me a job. I will accept you, Jesus, if. I will accept you, Jesus, if this, if that. And yet in that, we're not accepting Jesus at all, but we're rejecting him. Some of us think that, hey, Jesus, if you just take care of me. I was talking with an individual, asking them if they were going to Easter services this last week, and they said, why would I go to Easter services? What has Jesus done for me lately? My life's pretty bad. What has he done? Why would I worship him? If he was all that he said he was, then I wouldn't have the problems that I do. And I said, you've got a wrong picture of Jesus. He says, my picture will do. And he lives in rejection. But maybe that's not where you're at. He brings up a second group. He speaks of the Greeks. What does he say about the Greeks? He says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Why did the Greeks reject the message of the cross? Because they said it didn't make sense. They would pull out their pad and paper and they would begin to write down, okay, cross plus empty tomb equals salvation. No, that doesn't make sense. No, um, man is sinful and God is holy. Therefore, God must do something. No, that doesn't make sense either. So they began to put formulas together. And the formula was, is man just needs to educate himself. Man just needs to grow in philosophy. If we understand who we are and that we understand that we can evolve into something greater than education and programs will do it. We just have to become wise. There was this idea of Gnosticism back in the day of Jesus' time, especially when Paul was writing this. And the idea was is that knowledge would save you. You just get smart enough. You just keep thinking through and and getting to this higher level of learning. And there you will find true enlightenment. Boy, I'm glad Gnosticism isn't the way to go because I ain't that smart. That was a joke. You should have laughed. There you go. That's better. The Greeks said, you know what? We'll just get smarter. There has to be a rational approach to this issue of salvation. And so what do they do? They don't try to make Jesus on their own. They try to make their own Jesus. They try to say, you know what? Jesus isn't the Savior of the world, but I am. If I work hard enough, if I do enough, then I can get my own salvation. People reject Jesus every day. Some today are listening to the sound of my voice and are saying, you know what, Tim? It's a crock. It doesn't make any sense. You can't put it together. It's not rational. And you'll use the word faith, and that doesn't make sense either. Tim, it's not worth even looking into. But here's the problem. 
The problem, it says, is those who reject it. He says, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. In verse 18. The word perishing is in the tense that it's ongoing. People are perishing all the time. The idea here is not total annihilation, but death, and death that then consigns them to hell. People every day who have rejected Jesus Christ are dying. Now maybe today isn't your day. You'll have a wonderful ham dinner, you'll enjoy your family, and you will go on with your day and through the week and you'll have your job, you'll see your kids grow old, but there is a day coming that Paul says that we will perish, we will die. And the question is, are you going to continue to reject Jesus Christ? Because if you are, the Bible says, and it makes it very clear, that those who do not know Christ will, when they die, be judged by God and be consigned to hell. Not for a short amount of time, not to purge your sins, but to send you there for eternity. That is what is left for those who reject Him. But what Paul says is the good news. In verse 17, he says, I preach the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, that which brings good tidings. Now, where is the good news? It is in that when we respond. Because it's not all who reject, because there will be some who will respond to it. Paul says that those who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you don't respond to the gospel, then you now know where you are going. That's not very good news at all. But if you embrace Christianity and take it and bow the knee to Jesus Christ and accept it fully for what it is, Jesus says that he will come into your life. He will change you. He will renew you. He will make you like himself. And on the day of judgment... You will stand before Almighty God and what will transpire is not a consignment to hell, but an invitation to heaven and all it affords. Have you responded to the call of Christ? Maybe you've come here today and you weren't even planning on being at church and now you're wondering and saying, hey, even if there's a shred of credibility to what Tim is saying, what is your answer? What is your response? The Bible says that we must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And if we don't, then we will find ourselves not only rejecting God, but God rejecting us. Have you come to Jesus before this morning? Have you come to a place where you have given your life over to Him? If you haven't, then it's time for you to get into the shadow of the cross. It's time for you to look at that cross and to say, Jesus, what is it? What is there for me. If you have not given yourself over to Christ, today is the day. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe this morning? If you'd like to talk with someone, pray with someone, at the end of this service, uh, we'll be more than happy to talk with you. There will be elders that will be down here in the front of the auditorium. I will be out by the back door. Stop and let's talk before the end of the day, before you go on with your activities, that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are saved and that you have embraced the powerful message of the cross. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for this message of the cross. 
Father, I thank you that through the message of the cross, we can be saved. Now, Lord, I know that this is foolishness, that there is foolishness that is seen by the world when it comes to your cross, to your death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I pray that you would open the hearts and minds of all in this place, that our hearts would be turned in a way to look to that cross, to take in that cross, to remember what you did for us on that cross. It is there that we find life. Lord, let us embrace it. Let us draw near to it. For the one that is here today that has never trusted you, allow their hearts and minds to be opened that they will see you for who you are, that they will taste and see that you are good. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the gift of Christ, for the gift of the cross. We pray that you will use the cross to bring many to yourself today and for the days, weeks, months, and even years to come that you will gather a people unto yourself one day from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will cry out, glory to God in the highest. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.